The following is a message by Professor Zach Keel from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. We kind of finish up looking at uh, the books of 1st and 2nd Kings. We're going to look at two passages. The first one is 1st Kings chapter 5 verses 1 through 6, and then 2 Kings chapter 17, 6 through 23. If you're looking in your Hebrew, that's in the Hebrew, it's 5 uh, chapter 15, 1 Kings 5, 15, but in the English 5, 1. So first, beginning in 1 Kings 5, 1 through 6. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he had heard that they had anointed him king in the place of his father, for Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David my father could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet." But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David my father, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Now therefore command the cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants at such wages as you set, for you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. And then flipping over to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 17, 2 Kings 17, beginning in verse 6 through verse 23, so 6 through 23 of 2 Kings 17. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah, on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that, they, that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watch tower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree, And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did, whom the Lord had carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger, and they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers, and, and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn, 
as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not be like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had spoken by all his servants the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. As far as the reading of God's word, let us pray. Lord, we... As we open your word, we ask that you, your spirit would be among us, that you would open our ears and our, our eyes, that you would truly give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that we might understand your truth and that we might see it in Christ and that we might rejoice in the great redemption that you have provided for us and that we might walk in the freedom of Christ, seeking to love you and to keep your word as your beloved children. We thank you for your truth that sanctifies us and we pray that you'd be glorified now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, most of us know someone who we would consider to be kind of accident-prone, maybe a klutz. I mean, if anything can go wrong, it goes wrong for them. If a car breaks down, they were the one driving it. If a sickness goes around, they always catch it. If a computer crashes, it's their computer. Yes, we all know someone like this. In fact, you might be this person. Nevertheless, accidents and misfortunes, as you know, happen to us all. This is the way things work in our world. Isn't that right? It's part of life. It's part of our cursed world. In fact, so common are accidents and evil occurrences and misfortunes that if they stop happening, we would think, wow, we're in paradise. No more evil accidents? That would be great. No more stubbing your toe? No more car wrecks? Well, in the passage here in 1 Kings 5, this is precisely how Solomon describes his kingdom. In fact, Solomon's own description here in in the beginning of chapter 5 is key to the overall story of the book of Kings. Now, so far in 1 Kings, Solomon, he has come to power. He's received God's gift of wisdom. He secured his kingdom with the result that now his kingdom is overflowing with peace wealth. As it says in 1 Kings 4.25, every Israelite is under his vine and under his fig tree. Thus, with this newly found grandeur, with the ascension of Solomon to the throne, now Hiram, a foreign king, sends greetings to Solomon. 
and this was typical diplomatic exchange when a new king came to power. Yet Solomon's response to Hiram is very significant and very theologically weighty. Now, even though Solomon hasn't built the temple yet in the story, his description of his kingdom is very much uh, cast in terms of the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. He mentions this first in the fact that he tells us why David could not build the temple in verse 3, because he was a man of war. Then he goes on to even quote God's promise from 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13, that God, David's son would build a house for God's name. Moreover, Solomon states that God has finally put under his feet all his enemies. The line that's identical to Psalm 8, verse 6. He has peace all around. Also then in verse 7, which we didn't read, but there Hiram responds to Solomon's description by blessing God for fulfilling his word to David. Yet the language here used in verse 4, the second part of it, is very interesting. Note that he says, there is no adversary or misfortune in my kingdom. Thus, there's no accuser. There's no adversary or enemy that is troubling or threatening Israel. Moreover, he says, there's no evil misfortune which is literally no evil chance or accident. Now, the word here for accident or chance, pegah in the Hebrew, is found only twice in the Old Testament. Here, in Ecclesiastes 9.11, there the preacher states that a key attribute to life under the sun, the common curse, is that time and chance happen to us all. Accidents, tragedies happen. We know this is part of our life. But Solomon says they're not happening in his kingdom. There are no evil chances. Rather, God has fulfilled the promise to David in Solomon. He has curbed the common curse, and peace reigns. Truly, from these few verses, we wonder if Solomon is not thinking that Psalm 110 has been fulfilled in him. Look, all that my enemies are under his feet. I am that greater son of David. In Solomon, God, or the kingdom of God, seems to have come on earth. A new paradise has been created. Evil is gone. God's people dwell in peace, security, and wealth, overflowing with abundance. Solomon says here that Israel is the new garden of God, and he is a new Adam. However, the story does not end here. There is no happily ever after at the end of verse 6. Instead, as you know, God tells Solomon that he must obey the commandments and keep the covenant. Solomon must obey to keep this idyllic and paradise kingdom. And does he? Well, as you know, Solomon does not keep the Lord's commandments. Rather, he sins against the Lord and goes after other gods, being tempted by his many wives. In fact, by the time of chapter 11, before Solomon's death, we see that there are many adversaries already creeping up in Solomon's kingdom. Thus Solomon dies and is laid with his fathers. But if Solomon failed, then did any of his sons succeed in securing the kingdom through obedience? Well, no. And so we come to 2 Kings 17. 
And if 1 Kings 5 pictures Solomon's kingdom as a paradise, then 2 Kings 17 pictures Israel as hell on earth due to their sin. Indeed, this theological summary inserted here of Israel's history is inserted right after Assyria destroys Samaria and carries them off into exile. There is no obedience in Solomon's sons, in the people of Israel. And so there is for them only curse, the curses of the covenant, the rightful punishment for their rebellion. And just as 1 Kings 5 pulls from the language of God's promise of 2 Samuel 7, so here the Spirit alludes to a myriad of places in the law, especially Deuteronomy. Numerous times in Deuteronomy, God said that Israel was stubborn and stiff-necked people. And again, as it says here in verse 14 of 2 Samuel 17, Israel has proven again to be the same way. The two calves that Jeroboam made in verse 16 is the same language used of the golden calves of Exodus 32, retold in Deuteronomy 9 that Aaron made. Israel's gross sin of child sacrifice and divination and omens is the precise language that the Lord condemned that they should do in Deuteronomy 18. Moreover, even though this condemnation focuses upon Israel, in verses 19 and 20, it says the same is true for Judah, who will be judged and exiled by the end of the book, though without this expansion. Hence, Israel and Judah have the same nature. They meet the same fate. Finally, then, in verses 21 and 23 of of 2 Kings 17, Jeroboam and all Israel is condemned for breaking away from the Davidic kings, the place of God's promise. Thus, this pericope wraps up with an inclusio with verse 6 that Israel sinned a great sin, a phrase repeated three times in Exodus 32 for worshiping the golden calves. And thus it says, after this great sin, Israel was exiled. And all of this in keeping with the curses of the covenant. As the curses of Leviticus 26 make clear, if Israel spurns the covenant, their land will become desolate. Death shall reign. Therefore, what is the overall story of the book of Kings? Well, the book begins with a new paradise. God has redeemed his people out of Egypt, and he has fulfilled his promise to David by setting up a blessed kingdom of God on earth under Solomon. Yet the question that is poking us in the side is, can Israel or any of her kings obey in order to live in and keep this paradise? And what's the answer? No. Judah and all their kings are stiff-necked, stubborn, and bent upon idolatrous rebellion against the covenant. Thus, right after 1723, 2 Kings, the author of 2 Kings describes the land as a cursed wilderness. In a crazy passage, we're told that the wild animals kill everybody and take over. Assyria can't even live in there. It becomes a wasteland, a cursed, desolate place. Truly, then, we see now that these books are written for us, as the Apostle Paul says. Israel is an example for us. The story of the book of Kings then shows us that we cannot save ourselves, and not just this, 
but it reflects on our life in covenant with the Lord. Indeed, God had already redeemed Israel out of Egypt. He was the one that gave success to David and set up Solomon's paradise kingdom. God saved his people into a new relationship. So also, we are reminded that we cannot be saved by our works. Indeed, we don't choose God. Christ died for us while we were still sinners, dead in sin like Israel in Egypt. But the more poignant question of kings is, can we stay in the covenant by obedience? If God puts us back in a place like Adam, would we obey? With our fallen natures, can our works merit some favor before God? Can we secure life by our works? Well, as Psalm and Israel shows us, no. We're not just saved by grace, but we stay in by grace as well. Truly, we needed one greater than Solomon. The f- true fulfillment of Psalm 110, that true and obedient second Adam. Christ, he was the one and only who put every enemy under his feet, particularly sin and death for us. And he did this by his perfect obedience unto death on the cross. Thus, we are justified by Christ alone, freely through faith alone. But Christ did not merit for us just forgiveness of sins, but he merited us assurance of life everlasting, of the true promised land of heaven. So then also, sanctification is also a work of the Spirit of Christ, flowing from our justification. Our Christian life, people, is not about us having a conversion experience and then pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. He doesn't just bring us up to zero by forgiving, and then we've got to earn our way through the pearly gates. Obey to stay in the land. No, King shows us that covenant gnomism does not work. It's not what we can do. It's not our life. Rather, perseverance of the saints is a work of God. Sanctification is God's work in us. And these are all founded upon and flow from Christ's work in our justification. Hence, we should never tire of hearing the gospel as if you only need to hear it once and then the rest of your life is just about obedience. No, we should heed the story of the book of Kings, namely that we're saved solely by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We are who we are by God's grace. Thus, our obedience in life is not about earning favor or securing a place in the heavenly land. But our obedience is truly done in freedom. And thus it can be done with joy, knowing that our obedience is a fruit of what Christ has done for us and continues to do in us through his Spirit, leading us to that new and heavenly promised land. Truly we see that kings points us to our Savior and to our life in our Savior. This is how we live, not by our strength, but by the grace of God. Praise the Lord that now there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ, 
And thus our life is about faith expressing itself in love. Amen. Copyright 2007 Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.